Good morning, New Hope. Oh, my goodness, a sleepy bunch. Good morning, New Hope. My goodness, it is good to see you. If you'd like to take out your outlines, we're in a series that we've been addressing so far, the five challenges that confront Christianity. And what I'm trying to do here is provide you, your children, your grandchildren, your friends, some reasons that support our belief. In the first week, we looked at real truth. Does it exist? And we said yes, we showed yes, how we can know truth exists and it's knowable. We saw evidence from three things. Number one, evidence from the beginnings, the beginning of the universe. How does something come from nothing? Then we looked at the complex design was the second thing we saw about truth. And then we also saw a moral law that pointed to an intelligent and powerful God. The next week, we looked at eight characteristics this created, designed, and a moral lawmaker. If you just want to flick through some of the tables, that'd be great. And then we also looked at if God exists, if God does exist, then miracles are possible. Logically, they are possible. And miracles can, uh, can be used as acts of God to confirm the word of God. And then last week, we took a brief detour around and we had a very hard look at, is the New Testament reliable? Now, to help you answer that challenge, we looked, uh, uh, today, we're going to look at this last challenge. Some of your friends are going to say to you, hey, okay, I can go back in history, I can talk to history professors, and we can see that Jesus existed. Let's settle that. Okay, Jesus existed. But... Did he ever claim to be God? Because some of your friends are going to ask that. He was a man in history. And if Jesus is God, it would be a bit odd for him never to have said so. I mean, why would he come to earth and not tell anybody that he truly is God? Why would that be the case? So is this true? Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Did he ever flat out say that? Number one. And the only other question I'm going to answer today is it's one thing to claim it, it's another thing to prove it. So did he claim it? And did he prove it? That's what we're going to be look. Is there any proof of that? So today, on your outline there, I'd encourage you again to fill these outlines in because I'm actually doing the study for you that you can turn, maybe able to refer back to when your friends or family, children, grandchildren or colleagues ask questions about this. So let's start by looking at the evidence. First of all, did Jesus claim to be God? Well, there is one name, Jesus claimed to be God in the great Exodus of I Am. In Exodus 3.14, the one word or name that identifies the God of Israel right the way through the Old Testament is I Am, or the other word for it you'll see translated sometimes is Yahweh. So let's look at this next scripture here. Moses said to God, suppose, remember when he was going to go challenge Pharaoh, suppose, I love the way he puts this, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what's his name? Then what shall I say to them? Well, God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So that was an identification with God. This name was actually so special in the, um, in, uh, that only the high priest could even speak it in the temple. 
in Jerusalem. Why was that? Because it was the one holy name for God. The one holy name for the one true God. So what does have that got to do with Jesus? Well, it directly connects to the objection. He never claimed to directly call himself God. See, Jesus applied this word, a Jews that the would a word that the Jews would not even speak God's most holy name, the name, to himself. And we can see that here. There are two examples that show Jesus is doing this. Number one, when the Jews accused Jesus of being demon-possessed, he was doing miracles and said, ah, the reason why you can do that is you're the king of all demons. Remember that horrendous accusation? And he said he was not. Then he went on to say that he was greater than Abraham, and he plainly told the Jews, I am, and they knew exactly what he meant. In fact, you'll see here also in John 8, 56 and 58, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of, of my day, seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. That's through the eyes of faith. And the Jews couldn't believe what he just said. And they said, hold on, mate. You're not even 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Then Jesus stunned them with the supplies like the right left. Boom, boom. He says, in verse 58 there, he says, I tell you the truth. Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claimed right there to be God. The Jews knew exactly what he meant. He, this guy, was claiming to be God. And look at the result. They were so incensed. 8.59 of John. And at this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Second, Jesus told the Jewish officials and soldiers and the chief priests by boldly using the name to claim his divine identity on the night he was betrayed by Judas. Remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas came to the Garden with a detachment of Roman soldiers and some Jewish officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. The reason why they were so ticked, they thought he was blaspheming. Verse 4. And by the way, they're carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. You may remember the scene well. Verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, What is it, or who, who is it that you want? And verse 5, then they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. That's all it says in the original. But the interpreters, have, uh, the translators have added the word he to make it clear. I am. The italics were added so it's clear to us, he it's not in the original, but the translators have added it to make it grammatically correct in English. Now Judas, who was betraying, who'd betrayed them, was standing there with him. And verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, what happens? This is one, one of two times in the entire New Testament where people fell backwards. One was a demon possession, and the second was a rebuke. Here it is. When he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. They fell backwards to the ground. Notice the effect. Jesus was speaking his holy name on trained soldiers that walked a long way. These were tough guys. 
and armed soldiers, and it graphically illustrates how Jesus could have easily, easily defended himself against these people. In fact, the Bible actually says he's going to slay Satan with, a, with, his, with, a, with his breath. Very powerful. Verse 7. So he again asked them, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Then Jesus answered, I told you, I am. There it is again, he. So if you seek me, let these others go. In John 18, 5 verse 8. So Jesus here is declaring in clear terms to the unbelieving Jewish officials and the soldiers that he was God. And that is the primary reason why they sought to execute him. That reason right there. Verse 31. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Oh, we're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews. But, this is why, here it is. But for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So, if anybody says to you, Jesus never claimed to be God, I have just given you the proof that he said and he claimed to be God. You may want to circle that. John 31, and there, verse 33. Second, Jesus claimed and used the titles of God. Notice this. Using these titles, Jesus was plainly telling his people that he was God in the flesh, Emmanuel. They knew it, and they didn't believe him. That's why they're trying so hard out to kill him. Look at those titles. You may just want me to look through them. God is called Lord in the Old Testament. Jesus claimed to be the Lord there in Mark. Jesus, a God is called the king in Psalm 5. Oh, there's many, many others. I could have given them to you. But Jesus claimed to be king in John 18. What God claimed, Jesus claimed. Uh, Jesus claimed God claimed to be the, the shepherd in Genesis. But in Matthew and John there, Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd. God is called light in the Old Testament. But Jesus also says, I am the light who came into the world. What God claims, Jesus claims. I am the living water, God claims in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus claims the thing. Now, hold on. Let me clarify any ridiculous thinking out there. If somebody says, that they use the word God, what you should say when you're having a discussion is, what does that God, you should be asking yourself, what does that God look like? If that God doesn't look like Jesus Christ, it's another God. It's a completely different God. Small g. God and Jesus Christ. You see me, you see the Father. A is the same as A. A and not A are not the same thing. Remember that. That cuts through all the clutter. If it's not the same as Jesus Christ, it is a different God. Number three. The Bible is clear. Only God is to be worshipped. Agreed? Right, that's clear. All the Jews knew this. Jesus also said, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. By the way, some of you in your life previous have gotten this, and some of you today have got this round back to front. You're trying to serve God, and you're wondering why it's feeling heavy. 
problem is you've forgotten the order. Worship the Lord, then serve him only. Trouble is, some of you are working without worshiping. And you'll never have that strength to continue. All of our strength comes from worshiping the Lord. It's one of the purposes of this church. Only God is to be worshipped. However, here's my point. Uh, On at least 10 different occasions, and I went through all of those this week, Jesus accepted worship from people. That's really a demarcation here. So who did actually worship Jesus? Where are those points? Well, men and women that were healed of leprosy and issues of blood and demon possession and blindness all worshipped Jesus. You can go back and read those. I've given you a few examples there. Secondly, what about, it's one thing to be worshipped by people whom you've healed from a distance, but what about those closest to you that you spent three years eating with and sharing rooms with? They worshipped him. His disciples, as well as Jewish people and non-Jewish women. Jewish and non-Jewish women as well. In fact, he never refused worship from anybody. And accepting worship, he was clearly claiming to be God. Number four. Jesus commanded his disciples to pray in his name. See, the Jews were told to pray to God. But Jesus, and God alone, by the way, God alone, the Shema. But Jesus told his followers to pray in his name. He said they could ask for anything in his name, and I'll do it. Not even was saying to pray to him and ask in his name, he was also claiming that he could answer prayer. Hmm. Any Jew that only God could do this. Again, another reason why they're super ticked with him. Jesus' command was an obvious claim to be God. Number five, Jesus claimed to be God and led, did and lead a sinless life. He claimed to and did lead a sinless life. No other religious figure in history, I challenge you, find me one, has ever claimed to be perfect. Nobody. Muhammad. In the Quran, uh, 47.19, chapter 47, verse 19, if you want the exact reference, asked for forgiveness. Many other places. He needed a lot of forgiveness, that guy. Buddha, he deserted his wife. Did you know that? Historical fact. The Bible's great heroes had many moral failures, even David. Who do you want to think of? Samson, Noah. You name them. Everyone but Jesus. There was no moral failure on his part. And by claiming to lead a sinless life, Jesus was in effect claiming to be God, because only God is perfect. Those who knew him even best. So, hang on, there's two parts to this. To claim it, let's talk about those who know you best or, know, or knew Jesus best. And the other part, let's look at those who were his enemies. What did they say? So friendly fire... But you haven't said that. Even your own family know you better than the person sitting next to you, probably. So people up close, those who knew him best. We have one, the Bible says in Hebrews 14, 4, 5, 15, we have one who has been tempted in every way. So every way that you've been tempted, every way, discouragement, depression, all sorts of, we could go through the whole lot. Disillusionment, 
He has been tempted in every way, just as we are. But he did not sin. 1 Peter 2.22 He committed no sin and no deceit was in his mouth. This is the hardest thing to control. Further. He is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. That's in Hebrews 7.26. And again in Hebrews 9.14 Christ offered himself an unblemished sacrifice to God. That means perfect without fault and even now we've looked at his friends what about his enemies even his enemies agreed well where do you get that from look at the bible judas said i have sinned for i have betrayed what innocent blood i'm the one that's blinded what about Pilate? the guy in charge supposedly i find no basis for a charge against this man luke 23 verse 4. Pilate's wife. He should have listened to his wife. Men, listen to that. Listen to your wives. She said, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. Don't have anything to do with him. The centurion at the cross. Surely this man was a righteous man. Luke 23 47. Surely he was the son of God. What got him going is when it went very dark at 3 o'clock. By the way, we have extra biblical evidence for that and the earthquake that followed. I showed that last week. This blew him away. The thief on the cross even. Hey, this man's done nothing wrong. The testimony of friend or foe confirms that Jesus, what he said and showed about his own character, his deity is the best explanation for Jesus' being without sin number six jesus claimed to do what only god can do only god has the power and authority to forgive sins next click mark 2 7 why does this fellow talk like this he's blaspheming who can forgive sins but god alone well no dirt only God can do that. Yet Jesus is claiming to forgive sins. Only God has the power and authority to act as the ultimate judge. Our judgments are flawed. His are not. You'll read about that in Matthew. And then here's, here's a good example of this here. Matthew 25, 32. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another. This is a very sobering point. When God separates the sheep from the goats. Separate the people from one another. As a shepherd, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So only God has the power and authority to determine each person's final destiny. And it's once. That happens at the exact point. John 5.24 says, I tell you the truth. 
Whoever believes, who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death into life. And thereby, when he said this, he was claiming to be God. Seven. Jesus claimed and proved to have the power that only God has. Firstly, to do miraculous things, healings. Jesus healed a wide variety of diseases. The blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, and the dumb. And by the way, when he healed them, they were healed completely and permanently. No losing your healing doesn't happen. That is a miracle. Only God can do that. Also, only God can accurately predict the future. Jesus accurately predicted the future. You can go back and have a look at that if you're interested in that. Matthew 24, 1 and 2, and many other places. God has power over nature. So what is it for Jesus to walk on the water? That's easy peasy. Creating the universe is probably the biggest miracle that ever happened. So to walk on water, what is that? What is that to heal somebody with leprosy? Easy peasy. God has power over demons and Satan. By the way, never give too much. You'll notice in this church, we never give the opposition much credibility. Because God has all, all the power. There's not some mighty struggle going on there. God can just slay him as he will do with his breath. God uses Satan for his own purposes. That's a whole other subject. But remember, if God was all the power, he says, hey, you Satan, like you did in Job, you go read it. You've got this. Don't step outside of that. You can do this, but that's it. Satan does not have any power that is not given to him by God. There's some crazy thinking about that. The doctrine that we call that is the doctrine of omnipotence. The Christian doctrine of omnipotence. And God gives that power to who he, use, who he chooses for the purposes he wants. That's a whole other subject. Also, God has the power over death. Again, Jesus raised people from the dead. You can read about that. So if Jesus is God, then he should be able to do anything that God has the power to do. When Jesus showed you the power of God, he was confirming that he is God, and you can see that in that slide. Briefly, number eight, Jesus claimed other titles that Jews applied only to God, and two unique titles for himself. And the Jews of his time understood clearly the statement of divinity when he claimed himself to be the son of God. God. Jesus said he was the son of God. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I'm God's son. John 10, 36. Does this mean in biological sense? No, but in the Greek, son of man means the same as or equal to. Jesus is saying he's God's equal here. You can see why the Jews were racked up. The Jews knew what Jesus was claiming. He says, the Jews here in John 19, 7. The Jews insisted, we have a law. They were hot on the laws. And according to that law, he must die. Because he is claimed to be the son of God. There is the root of their furor. 5.18. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. 
Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, one of their laws, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, Jesus was very clear about this. He wasn't doing this in a corner. And in response to those claims, we've seen the Jews' response. They turned against him and sought to kill him. The second title, that Son of Man. Jesus used the Son of Man, his favorite title for himself. If you do a search through the scriptures, his favorite title is the Son of Man. He repeatedly is used as that title throughout all of the Gospels. So when Jesus applied this title to himself, the Jews understand he is not claiming that he's Joseph's son. No, 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 not at all. He was claiming to be this divine figure equal to God, referring to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 17, verses 13 through 14. And the priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? If there's any doubt, you've heard this blasphemy. That's it. So by tearing his clothes, it was a symbol that this is so serious, it must be fixed. It's irretrievable, therefore death or blasphemy to be claiming to be equal to God. So the Jews were plainly understood here. There's no question you can see from the scriptures. He applied this term to himself. Now at this point we have three choices, just three. So claiming these things, there's only three possibilities. This is a useful tool. Number one, Jesus was mentally unstable. He was a lunatic. Just remember all the L's. There's three L's coming up. That's a possibility. He thought he was God, and he just said that. He was a lunatic. Lost touch with reality. He's delusional. He's a lunatic. That's possibility number one. C.S. Lewis owns this, by the way, if you want to quote where this comes from. C.S. Lewis put into a no uncertain terms. He must be one of the followings. Jesus was either a lunatic that thought he was God, but he really wasn't. That's a possibility. Therefore, he was crazy, like somebody who thinks he's Napoleon Bonaparte. That's a possibility, number one. Number two, Jesus was a liar. Jesus said he was God, but he flat out knew he wasn't. He was a deceiver. But remember here, even his enemies considered him a moral man. And number three, third possibility, is he was the Lord. It's the only remaining choice. Now think about it this way. Next slide. If God would come to earth, what would we expect? If God became man, what would he be like? What would he do? Here's the list of what we could expect if God came to earth as a man and then compare this to your knowledge of what happened in the life of Jesus. Well, if he came into this world, he'd probably have a different entrance into this world, right? He was virgin born, angels appeared, and there were signs in the sky. That's a pretty different way of doing that. Also, to tell people that he was God. Jesus clearly told people we'd expect that. If he was God, we'd expect him to say that, not to hide. We'd also expect... God to live a perfectly moral life. Jesus was without sin. We'd also expect Jesus to provide evidence that he was God, and he performed miracles and then the power over nature, casting out demons. Also, we'd expect him to have the power over death, because he's the source of all life, right? And Jesus healed men and women, and he also raised people from the dead, not the least of which was himself. 
with also expecting to speak the most profound and wise and smart and brainiac words that have ever been spoken. And Jesus taught the greatest moral command of any man. Men said, no man has ever spoken the way this man does. John 7, 46. We'd also expect them to provide, God to provide a way and a means by which men could come to know him. Why would God come and not have us know him and why he came? We'd expect them to be clear about that. Well, Jesus provided us a way to know him and he said, he was the only way to God. Very clear. We'd also expect to have a lasting and universal influence if God came this way. And Jesus has influenced more life, history, buildings, paintings, and the lives of more men and women in history than any other man in history. And he came from a little town which you'll see next year, if you come with us to Israel, called Nazareth. You'll go to the very hill where he was pushed right up to the top of Mount Precipice before, he was, before the crowds where they took him up there. And we also expect him to have a message that would speak to all men and all women at all times and all places. And the gospel of Jesus Christ has reached more men and women in every place, in every generation. And it's accelerating. Now relating to men and women in various parts of society and culture, Jesus related to the rich, to the poor, to the kings and the servants, the Jews, the Gentiles, the old and the young would expect, if God came, to change the lives of those who met him and knew him. And Jesus did change the lives of those who met him and the lives of those he knew. We'd also expect Jesus to satisfy the spiritual hunger of men and women. And Jesus has satisfied spiritual needs of men and women all over the world. He is the bread of life and he is the living water. We'd also expect the God who came to earth to show sympathy and empathy to our problems of sickness, of worry, of pain. And Jesus showed great empathy to, for the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual needs of men and women. And also, we'd expect that God to provide some kind of solution to sin and pain and suffering. Total order, eh? But Jesus died for our sins to comfort us when we suffer and, and have pain and in the face of problems. And lastly on this, or just about there, we'd expect him to leave some kind of permanent record that he was here. Why would God come and not leave a record for others to know that he was here on what he said? The words that I give you, they are words of spirit and they are life to you. And Jesus promised the New Testament. And then lastly, you would expect him to leave in a different manner than most people. After being resurrected, he ascended bodily in the same body that he will come back with into heaven in full view of the disciples. So what we've learned, Jesus directly claimed to be God. That's been crystal clear. Then we add the, when we add up the evidence, it's undeniable that he claimed to be God. And he did this not because he was crazy. He didn't do this to lie or to deceive people. He did this for one reason and one reason only. He was and is God. Now, if someone says Jesus never claimed to be God, you now 
have got enough information to plainly and clearly say he most certainly did claim to be God. Anyone can claim anything though. Proving it is a different issue. Is there any proof that he's God? What's the evidence for this claim? So challenge number seven, is there any evidence that Jesus is God? Okay. Jesus did claim he was God, but what evidence supports this? Why should anybody, any of your friends, believe this? Well, last week we saw that the New Testament documents are reliable. Historical accounts written by men of high moral character and people like Luke of the highest impeccable standards for being a historian. So this, since this is true, we can trust what they recorded about the deity of Christ. What proof do they offer? Luke 1. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words. <laughs> that is the master of understatement. <laughs> and wondered what kind of greeting this may be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you to give him the name Jesus. What a stunning claim. Why would anybody invent something like this? Virgin births don't happen. But if it were true, it would definitely have to be an act of God. And it could be offered as proof that Jesus is truly God. By the manner of his birth, the New Testament affirms that it is Jesus is God. Number two, the New Testament records that Jesus displayed the attributes of God. If God possessed an attribute, Jesus possesses it as well, because A is the same as A. The identical attributes of both people. So in terms of their nature, there is no difference though between them. God is eternal in Genesis 21.33. But so is Jesus eternal. Where's that? John 1, 1 through 4. The two are the same. I want you to see this. This is very important. God created everything. But read John 1, John 1, 4. Everything was created through the Son. Jesus Christ is the creator. God is life. The Bible says in 1 John 5, 11, Jesus is life. God is an eternal ruler in Psalm 9. Jesus is an eternal ruler in Hebrews 1.8. This is what we would expect to see on both sides of the equation. God does not change. This is a lie that's been perpetuated by some modern, in my view, antiquated thinking. One of the chief doctrines we have is God's immutability. There is no changing with God. That's a great comfort to us. He never changes. He's always consistent. Jesus does not change. Hebrews, he, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no shadow of changing with him. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent, Psalm 139. Jesus is present everywhere, Matthew 18, 20. 
God knows everything. He's omniscient. There's not a thing in this universe he doesn't understand. And that is mind-blowing to me. Just from my background as computer science, I spent two hours this week with a piece of code this long, and it had one little mistake in it, and it took me nearly two hours to figure out where's one full stop in the wrong place, and the thing doesn't work. Your DNA is so much more complex. It is unbelievable digital code. Everything. The freezer. I said to my wife, look, darling, the first freezer of the season. Look at that beautiful smell. You tell me the mathematics that makes that beautiful aroma come from that freezer. The coding for that is mind-blowing. Bill Gates appreciates that. God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. Jesus is all-powerful and omnipotent. John 13.3 says that. You need to go back and see those. So there's a dead match. And then God has unique glory. Jesus has God's glory. So in summary, it says what God did, God is, Jesus is. And what Jesus is, God is. Therefore, Jesus is God. Both the Old and the New Testaments show this to be demonstrably true. Number three. At the baptism of Jesus, God the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my Son, whom I love. He said the same on another occasion. In chapter 17, verse 5. When the Father calls Jesus my Son, he was affirming the deity of Christ. Gabriel here tell, um, tells Mary her child will be the son of the Most High, the son of God. Angels who told the shepherds about his birth referred to him as the Lord. And lordship is an attribute of deity. Demons, see, demons knew Jesus to be the son of God. Next click. Jesus, uh, demons knew Jesus to be the Son of God. In fact, they identified, acknowledged who he was, even if many people didn't. What do you want us to do with us, Son of God? They shouted. You have come here to torture us before the appointed time. That's when they're thrown into the lake of fire. You can read about that in Revelation. Here's some more points. Jesus' disciples knew him well, and this is how they described him. Nathaniel says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Even Thomas, dear old doubting Thomas, after he, he sees him, and says, Jesus says, come, 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 come. Check it out. What's his response? The guy who doubted, my Lord and my God. Nobody can do that. Peter, in Benias, at the top of in, in the top of Israel, he says, oh, "When Jesus says, who do you say that I am?' That very important question. Who do you? Because they're in the middle of this place where all these plethora of heathen gods were. And he says, "Peter, who do you say that I am?" And he says, "You are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God." And then John. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. John 20, verse 31. So, that's good. Even some of Christ's foes, though, confess that he was God. Nicodemus is a member of the Jewish high ruling council that eventually would vote to put Jesus to death. 
came one night to talk with him. And during the conversation, Nicodemus admitted to the leaders, that the leaders, some of Jesus' strongest opponents believed he was a teacher who has come from God. This is enemy attestation. And though he's probably a polytheist, the Roman centurion who witnessed a crucifixion said, surely he was a son of God. So there's a wide variety of people, friend and foe, who agreed and bore witness to the fact that Jesus is truly God. So, the New Testament records others agreed as well. God cannot sin, but what about Jesus? Many people attested to his perfect and sinless life. If Jesus were God, he would have lived a perfect life. Now, it would be one thing for those who don't even heard about Jesus if they said they lived without sin. But what about those who knew him best up close, you know, like your sister or your brother or your husband? Those who walked and talked and watched and listened and lived with him. The two disciples most mentioned in the New Testament said the following about the man they knew very, very well. Peter. 1 Peter 2.22. He committed no sin. And no deceit. That's a scripture I mentioned before. And then John. He is righteous and he is pure. Consider the remarkable statements about Jesus by those who had no reason to make them unless they were true. These are people who had no vested interest. How about the Jewish leaders who rejected him? Matthew twenty-two sixteen. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. In other words, you are not a people pleaser. That is a mark of Jesus that should also mark Christians. We are not people pleasers. Jesus wasn't. Jesus was no mamby-pamby guy. He stood his ground for what the course that was set before him. Judas, who betrayed him later in the confession. I have sinned. I've, con uh, I've betrayed innocent blood, as I mentioned. The officer who watched him die. Surely this is a righteous man. When Jesus was brought before Pilate, this is a new one. He asked the Jews, what crime? What crime has this guy committed? And they asked them, uh, they had no answer. There's no crime. And Pilate said to him, to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Even Herod found nothing to deserve death. Luke 30, 23, 15. Neither Herod, neither has Herod, uh, Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. The life of Jesus is recorded in the scriptures and in other non-scripture places as a record of complete perfection, moral perfection. He loved all people. He loved sinners. He forgave his enemies whilst he was on the cross. Then this perfect man died without being convicted of any crime. He gave up his life to die for people like you and me who didn't even know him and didn't even like him. We weren't even born then. He said this, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. No one who is merely a man 
could have lived such a life as this. The life of Jesus is proof that he is God. One more area of powerful proof that Jesus is God comes from prophecy. Do not neglect this area. Biblical prophecy is nothing like the quackery that happens in psychics, predictions, most of which never come to fulfillment. For example, I was looking back at some of the more hilarious ones. that Queen Elizabeth would die in 2010. Well, last time I checked, she's still kicking and looking amazing and has a great presence of mind. Uh, some of these other psychics predicted things like the Empire State Building would come down. Well, no duh, I think they took the Twin Towers. Oh, let's, try the, uh, let's try this one next. That's what they just picked out of nowhere. Those predictions are completely false because they failed. That's a test of a prophecy. Did it come to pass? In contrast that to biblical prophecy, it is 100% accurate. The focus of the whole Bible from Genesis through to Revelation is on Jesus Christ. Therefore, there are many prophecies about Jesus Christ in the Bible. At his first coming, there are more than 60 found in over 300 references throughout the Old Testament. They are vague predictions. Check. You might just want to write out the side for yourself. Mm, let's choose. Watch on. Psalm 53. You can go and read that this afternoon. Some were very unusual, like super unusual, and could only fit one man. Here's a couple. You can see the prophetic um, evidence that Jesus is God. Here's a couple. I'll just summarize them for you. Number one, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And by the way, there are two of them. One at the north and one at the south. So which one was it? Well, if you go back and read the scripture, it says Bethlehem of Ephratah, the one at the top. Okay. Um, the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Well, hello, you can go back and read that in Isaiah 7 verse 14. Check it out. The Messiah would have a, uh, have a herald, somebody that would go out before him. Sounds like John the Baptist to me, you can read about it. The Messiah will perform miracles and teach him parables. Sound familiar? And this was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came on the, uh, on the earth. The Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey on a certain day. We're going to get to that in a jiffy. On a certain day? Come on. That's a long shot. Jesus will be forsaken by his disciples. That they run off like a bunch of girls. Gone. The Messiah will be silent before his accusers. He wouldn't fight back. Really? Pretty odd. Most people I know, you get attacked, you're going to attack him back. The Messiah will be wounded, sneered upon, spit upon, mocked. Actually, talked about his beard being pulled out. Did you know that? Sounds like what happened, right? You can read about that this afternoon in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, verse 7. Here's a few more. Let's get specific. Real specific. The Messiah would die in AD 33. Let me say that again. The Messiah would die in AD 33. How much clearer do you want to be? That Jesus will be crucified with rebels. By the way, we know this is all fact because you can calculate from AD 29, the 15th year of the reign in Tiberius, when Jesus began his three and a half year ministry. The Messiah, the Messiah would suffer and die for our sins. The Jews hated that thought, but there it is, black and white in Isaiah 53. Again, go read that. The Messiah would be pierced. The Messiah would have his garments parted and lots cast through his clothes. And he actually tells you the number of pieces of silver he betrayed for. He, be, he will be betrayed for the exact number and the type of field that would be bought. How is that even possible? And then the Messiah would be buried in a rich man's tomb. This guy had bags of gold. Which he used for God's purposes. 
and the Messiah would rise from the dead. These are detailed prophecies made centuries before Jesus was born. Their fulfillment cannot be accidental and the result of chance. So Jesus clearly claimed that he was the fulfillment of these ancient prophecies. He claimed the Old Testament prophecies were written about him, and in fact he said he came to fulfill them. Luke 24, at the beginning, and beginning with Moses, which is way all the way down Genesis, all the way through, that's who wrote that. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. The Bible is all about Jesus. 44, and he said to them, this is what I told you whilst I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That is our Old Testament. The whole thing. Nothing um, is missed out there. And then look at this, John 5, 39. You diligently study the scriptures, God, that that will be the case this day. Because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Those scriptures talk and testify about me, Jesus says. Now, I want to just focus on one of these prophecies. So please, do me a favor right now. Everybody look up. Take a big breath. One more big breath. Let it out. One more. Okay. Now, I want your attention for two more minutes on this. This is important. This is an amazing prophecy because it proves Jesus and only Jesus is the Messiah. The Jews are being conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. The armies have taken away, taken them away and taken them to Babylon. The Jews and the temple were in ruins. And Daniel knew from the writings of Jeremiah, because he read his Bible, that the Jews will be in captivity for 70 years afterwards God will bring back to the whole land. Daniel is now praying for Israel, acknowledging the nation's sins, and asking God for his mercy. And as Daniel prayed, you can read about this, the angel Gabriel appeared to him and gave him a vision of Israel's future, which included a clock, which told exactly when the Messiah would come. Some of the events and some of the events that will surround his appearance. Now, here we go. Know and understand. In other words, wake up, smell a coffee, and check this out. From the beginning, the issuing of the decree. From. Remember that word from. For over there by that speaker. From. The issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until... The anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. I'm going to explain this. Hold on. After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. And the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, let's look at the main points there. Here it is. Number one, there will be a decree. Right there it says. To rebuild Jerusalem. Second, the, the Jerusalem, the temple, would be rebuilt. It says that. Third, the anointed one, the Messiah, will be cut off as an idiom for being rejected and killed. And four, then the Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed again. Very four clear claims here. Let's examine them. Here they go. Let's take a look at the math table. Multiply seven groups of seven years. Seven sevens, 49. Clear. Sit with me so far. Then multiply six groups of seven years, we get 434 years. Answer. Then adding these two periods together, click, click, 483 years. 
Now, Daniel was told that these 483 years would begin at a specific point in time. Begin at the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and would end with the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah. Now, here comes the science and the archaeology. King Artaxerxes, we know from history, issued that decree on March 5th. You may want to write this down if I haven't put it there. March 5th, 444 BC. Write that down. 440 BC. That was the starting date. But when, if we wind forward, did that 483 years end? Now, using the Jewish calendar, which had 360 lunar years in force at that time, it takes us forward. You may want to write this so you've got specifics. I stand by these numbers. This is a big number. 173,880 days from that moment. 173,880 days. Comes to exactly the day of March 30th, AD 33. That's just the facts. That's the data. Forget the interpretation. That's the data. That very day, the prince, the ruler that Daniel had predicted, rode into Jerusalem in AD 33 on what we now call Palm Sunday. Sounds like anybody you've heard of? You can read about that event in Matthew 22, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John. All four Gospels. Amazing! Five centuries before the event, God drew an X on the exact date Jesus would appear as a long-awaited son of David. Now, within a few days of that event, the anointed one was cut off, put to death, as Daniel also predicted. Now, there's only one prophecy. That prophecy, made centuries in advance, was fulfilled by one person, Jesus Christ. Only one person could ever fulfill all of those criteria. Now, you're going to ask the question, because my friends do, is it possible that Jesus could have arranged to fulfill what was told about himself? Is that even possible? Several scientific studies have shown how impossible it would be for somebody to even fulfill a few of these prophecies. You want to write this guy's name down? Dr. Peter Stoner calculated the mathematical odds with his university team of one man fulfilling just eight, and these are the eight that he chose, of 300. So we've got 300 to choose from. Here's eight we're going to choose. What would it be? So we can, we can measure these. Be born in Bethlehem, yay or nay? Two, be a forerunner, or have a forerunner like John the Baptist. Three, enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Very specific, not a horse. Most people rode horses back then, not donkeys. Only the peasants did that. Not for a king, very counterintuitive. Be betrayed by a friend. Five, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. I could have put in about potter's field and all that stuff. Have the silver to be, oh, there it is, to be used by potter's field. By definition, that was prophesied. Refuse to defend himself and be crucified. So, so the probability of just these eight out of 300 messianic prophecies be fulfilled by one man was reviewed by the American Scientific Affiliation. You need to quote that if you use the other numbers. The American Scientific Affiliation. Always quote your sources when it comes to hard facts. So let me give you an idea. If you took New Zealand, how many of you have been up to Kaitaia? See your hands? How many of you been down to Invercargill? Not many. Okay. It's reasonable length. But the one you then multiply it by three times. Just imagine something three times the size of New Zealand. That's roughly the size of Texas. 
and cover it with 50 cent pieces. And these are the small ones. Remember, not the big ones, the old ones. 50 cent pieces. And let's make it about half a meter deep over the entire three times of New Zealand. And in the middle of one of those, we're going to have one red 50 cent piece. Just one red 50 cent piece. And then imagine taking Renee and blindfolding her and stuffing her in a helicopter down at um, Mechanics Bay there and sending her on this place three times in New Zealand. And at this stage, she could be going for an hour this way, an hour this way, an hour that way, out in any random direction. And she just says, stop to the pilot. Drop it now. And he drops it down onto this coins. Imagine you could land on coins. And then she walks around a bit in any random direction and then she kind of like stuffs her hand and then picks that one and that's the exact number. That's the exact one you wanted. That chance has been calculated by those guys as 1 in 10 to the 17. It's ridiculous. Approaching the number, anyway. So these messianic, uh, messianic prophecies are beyond coincidental. It's beyond reasonable doubt. And by the way, that's what used, is used as a standard of evidence in a court of law. So the, imagine the odds of over 300, not just eight, but over 300 coming to pass. Seems to me that coincidence doesn't explain the facts. Rather, it seems reasonable to infer that God has planned it. So prophecy is a powerful proof that Jesus is indeed who he claimed to be, and that is the Son of God. So what we've looked at, we've looked at several fields of study. And we're building quite a list over these weeks in support of the claims of Christianity. And this is important that you know this. Grow. And some of you want to encourage you to grow more. Dedicate more time to growing in the Lord. Maybe a little less Facebook, maybe a little less radio, maybe a little less movies. Because you will have children, friends, grandparents, grandparents and friends looking for good answers. We've so far seen evidence that Jesus not only claimed to be God, but he also proved himself to be God. And one of the very important questions about Jesus remains that we haven't covered. And we're going to do that next week. Because many doubt the New Testament accounts that he claimed to come out of his tomb alive on the third day. But the New Testament claims he did come out on the third day. So next week... I'm going to spend some time looking at the evidence, both biblical and non-biblical, that he rose from the dead. Let's pray. Father, your word is so unfathomably deep. It is inerrant, without error, and true on whatever it touches. And that's because it is your word. God, there is no error with you. You never make a mistake. And we're so thankful that you have given us a clear word from you. Help us, Lord, to be skillful workmen and workwomen who know your word, who know what's in your word, and who can handle it accurately to give you glory, Lord, and to pull down vain arguments that exalt themselves against knowledge of the Holy One. Father, your words are life and they are always true. Would you, as we continue in this series, equip us to be men and women who know your word 
and who study your word. In Jesus' precious and powerful name we ask it. And everybody here who, said, who means this said, Amen. God bless you.